Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Female Driven Podcast. We are three film and television writers who are here to talk about how to make it as professional writers in the entertainment industry. This podcast covers what we wish we'd known when we were getting started. You can learn the easy way what we learn the hard way. I'm Hannah Rosner. I mostly write for television. I'm Jess Cho. I also mostly write for television. And I'm Erica Schreiber. I mostly write for features. And uh, I'm super excited about today's episode, which is about jargon. Everyone's favorite. We're writers, so we just love words. That's true. We do love words. That's a nice way to put it. But we say some really weird words and terms. We do. We hear a lot of weird words and terms when we're starting out, which is kind of how we came up with this idea. I was in my writer's room last week or the week before, and I was noticing how sometimes people will throw out references or throw out like, oh, you know, it's like a, it's a this, it's a that. And when I first started in a room, I was like, what, what are they talking about? And I felt like an idiot. And I would just like quickly like Google something on my phone. (laughs) (laughs) Under the table, Google. So, so important. But yeah, you like text us at like 2 a.m. being like, guys, this is what I want to talk about. And we're very <laughs> excited, as we are always excited to get 2 a.m. text from Hannah. So it's a weird niche thing that happens in writers' rooms that just the language that they adapt as a shorthand in the conversation as you're breaking story. Over time, you sort of pick up what they mean, but it can be really intimidating at the beginning when you're new to a writer's room. And they're also using words and, and phrases that you have no idea what the hell they mean. And it's kind of important for you to know what they mean in order to participate in breaking the story. One of the reasons that I think you don't know some of the jargon is like if you're a drama writer and you're not, you're, you've never been into genre, for example, you never really like watch sci-fi movies. This is happening in my room where we have some people are like really into fantasy or supernatural stuff because we're obviously a show about supernatural. I'm the odd man out that, you know, has not really watched a lot or read a lot of Harry Potter. So I'm the only one that like doesn't get those references. Five years ago, I would have scolded you for that. And today I'm like, good for you. (laughs) I was never into fantasy as a kid. I was more into sci-fi. So whenever there's a sci-fi reference, I'm like, oh, I'm all over that. And then the, some of the other people in the room who aren't into sci-fi are like, what are you guys talking about? So sometimes it's like, you're kind of being iced out a little bit of the conversation by you're like, wait a minute, how the hell am I going to know all these references to all these movies and shows that weren't around when I was growing up? Or if you didn't go to film school and so you don't know who Francois Truffaut is or whatever, this this is going to happen. It's just, it happens. It's going to be a technical term. It's going to be a pop culture reference from a culture that you just have not participated in. It's going to be something that goes around writer's rooms and only exists there. Like it's, we're, we're not going to be able to cover everything, but we, we made it like a big master list of like all the weird things people say in writer's rooms or film terms or whatever. And we're just going to talk about some of our favorites or least favorites, I guess. The ones that seem to come up the most and very useful to know. One of the first terms or first phrases I ever heard, and I had absolutely no idea what it meant because it's not self-explanatory, is a hat on a hat, which I then learned meant the same thing as a double beat. And a hat on a hat slash a double beat means you're, you're breaking story and you're like, okay, so we need this scene for this particular character's emotional arc. And then you're like, okay, we have that scene. And then someone else pitches another scene that does the same thing for that character's emotional arc. 
or it might not even be an emotional arc. It might be a plot device. Like, okay, I'm going to have Jane get into a car and do a high-speed car chase at the beginning. And then someone else is like, yes. And then we'll have a high-speed foot chase at the end. It's, that it's sort of like if those beats are sort of doing the same thing plot-wise and emotionally, then it's called a hat on a hat or a double beat. I always love that image, by the way. Yes. The idea being that it's redundant to put a hat on top of a hat. It may be a fashion statement, but it's not necessary. I will do hang a lantern. This is something I, I didn't know what it meant. It means you're illuminating something that really we do not need to point to, or you're pointing, you're pointing to the audience. This is an important setup, or this is exposition, or you're seeing like Chekhov's gun is, I don't know if this is a good example. It's like an example of an example, but Chekhov's gun is like, you know, a thing that is also said a lot in not just TV and film, but in like literature where it's like, if you set up a weapon, you have to use it. So that's sort of like you're hanging a lantern on. If there's like a shot of a gun that gets thrown onto a table and then somebody grabs it, you're definitely going to see that gun again and it's probably going to shoot somebody. So if you're, you might deliberately hang a lantern on something, you might deliberately be like, let's, let's point this thing out so that the audience remembers it. Let's, let's draw the audience's eye or their attention to this MacGuffin or this object. Maybe we'll talk about MacGuffins later too, but probably it's a phrase that will be used in the writer's room to say, maybe we shouldn't hang a lantern on this glaring logic problem that we haven't figured out. And we should just not talk about it at all rather than over explain it or add, you know, throw exposition at it. Exposition is also a term you guys probably know, but just in case you don't, it's just. It's it's an explanation that you want to achieve as organically as possible. You want it to be um, Kyle Reese explaining what's going on to Sarah Connor while the Terminator chases them and not something that stops everything for a 20 minute conversation about what's going on. Some characters exist solely for the purpose of exposition too. If you have like a robot butler or like a Basil exposition. Yeah. Or a voiceover character. Yeah. Basil (laughs) exposition is brilliant. Um, I always know there's too much exposition in something if, cause I always point that out. I'm just very picky now and it probably annoys my husband. But if my husband says like, there was a movie we were watching the other day and it was like, there's a scene where someone drops their earring and it's like, you know, that they're, it's Chekhov's earring. Okay. You know that someone's going to find that earring and it's going to be important later. And so the character picks up the earring and goes, it's May's earring. And Josh was like, obviously like <laughs> we just saw Like, we don't need to say that everybody knows it's her earring. <laughs> so that's when he was like, there's too much exposition in this movie. And I was like, honey, I'm so proud of you. This is going to lead me into the thing I want to do, which is MacGuffin, because I feel like everyone's heard that term and maybe too embarrassed to admit that they don't totally know what it means. But like a MacGuffin is the thing, right? It's, it's, it's an object and it matters to the plot. And it motivates the characters, but no way it kind of doesn't matter what it is. And it's like all the time in action movies or thrillers or something like that. I think going back to Lord of the Rings, the one ring is totally a MacGuffin. Everyone wants the ring. It, it like moves the plot forward. It moves, it propels our characters in kinds of all these like interesting directions, but it's just a thing, you know, like to be fair, it does have a super cool power, but like its biggest use is to move the plot forward. Not to be confused with a McMuffin, which can also sometimes drive a plot forward if it's the thing that you really want. It's usually the thing you want. I feel like when I was in film school, that's the way that they would talk about the MacGuffin was it's the thing that everybody's after. So again, the ring is the ring. They've already got it. So it's driving the plot. But in certain cases, it's like, was it Mission Impossible 3 that they had to get the rabbit's foot? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a MacGuffin. Like, you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, like the Ark of the Covenant 
is a fucking MacGuffin. You know, the, the Infinity Stones are all MacGuffins that span an entire franchise, right? Like who has them and who doesn't have them is what's pushing the plot forward. That's a MacGuffin. So this is semi-related to a MacGuffin, but a red herring is actually like a, a mislead MacGuffin. And I always had no idea what this meant. I was like, it's a fish that's red? Like what, <laughs> what is the point of this fish? I don't get it. But I think usually it's, it's actually dates back to like mystery novels and like I feel like it was widely used in murder mysteries and Agatha Christie type um, stories where it's a plot device, it's an object, it's a MacGuffin that is meant to mislead the audience. For example, in a murder mystery, if you see the knife that uh, is sort of like the probably the murder weapon, and then you see that so-and-so had the knife um, in a flashback, you're like, ooh, they're probably the killer. But that's directly attributed that knife was placed on that character's person to mislead the audience and think they must be the killer. I think this can be used in different ways. Have you guys, do you have uh, different examples? I actually really know the origin of this. <laughs> and I don't know if it'll be, it's a little helpful, right? But basically like a red herring is this like really strongly smelling type of fish, I guess. And like, so if like, you had like dogs on a hunt or like hounds, you know, like the fancy British hounds and they were like chasing a fox and they needed the, the hunt to end or whatever. They would use the red herrings to like lead the, the dogs away. Wow. That okay. Red herrings are very red. I'm looking them up right oh, now. <laughs> and I'm also remembering the scene in um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail when he's like, I want you to cut down this tree with a herring. A herring. <laughs> <laughs> Very misleading. But yeah, no, like I do think it spawns from from mysteries specifically, but it is used in all kinds of TV and film to basically mislead the audience. And it may be that a character is intentionally doing it, but it also just may be that we are using the audience's preconceptions to be like, oh, I saw that and get them excited about solving the mystery themselves while you're actually planting clues in another direction. Yeah, it can be a mislead or a distraction and it, it can be an object or a person like a character can be behaving in a certain way that makes you think the movie is telling me that this character has a vendetta against the the murder victim. And so that's a red herring. It's making me think that must be the killer when it's actually somebody else. Yes. And here's an example from a terrible movie, but like in Bridget Jones 2. <laughs> wow. Not yeah, what it is yeah. where I thought going you were going. Here, going here. It is a, a great rom. classic murder mystery. <laughs> There's this woman who, who's like, this young, beautiful woman, woman, and Bridget is sure that she's after Colin Firth, right? She's sure of it. And it turns out that she's actually in love with Bridget. And like, they go, they, they like, and she like, try, like, it's like this big mislead of like, oh, she's trying to steal your man. No, she's in love with you, you know, and it all adds up, but you didn't, you didn't suspect it. Partially because it's not a very good movie, but. There was a great red herring, and I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it yet, but in this season of Ted Lasso that I, they did a really good job of misleading me about something. And I was like, oh, very surprised that was it was it something phone, else. Was it phone related? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Santa related. Mm -hmm. I saw through it. Ha ha ha. Oh, look at you. <laughs> so smart <laughs> my next one is i kept hearing the phrase we'll just go around the horn or the phrase can also be around the world but i think i've heard around the horn most often i don't know this one i'm so excited around the horn i would say makes a lot less sense than around the world 
Yeah, I have no idea where Around the Horn came from, but if you're going Around the Horn in an episode, it basically just means you want to check in where, with all of your characters, kind of like emotionally where they're at. Usually it happens at the top of an episode or at the end of an episode, but like if there have been a bunch of crazy things that have happened and then you'd, you need to like check in with everybody, like, okay, we'll just go Around the Horn and then we'll just see like pops of each character and see like what they're doing now. Did the the deadbeat dad, did he man up and go to his daughter's birthday party? No, he went to the drugstore and got a pint of liquor or something. And then you check in with uh, the daughter and she's like, she's sad at the birthday party because her dad didn't show up. And then you check in with the mom who is like, oh, he's disappointed me again. So yeah, around the horn, just checking in with everybody. We do that a lot on our show too. I will agree with Hannah that around the world makes more sense, but I like around the horn. I picture like a cornucopia or something like that. I was picturing a trumpet, so there you go. That's a much more <laughs> rational thing to picture. All right, I have I have a really good one, guys. I feel like, especially for the untitled female-driven podcast, uh, fridging. Does anyone know this one? I think I've heard it, but I actually I don't know what it means. So I actually looked this up because it's I, I wanted to give credit. It, it was popularized by a comic book writer named Gail Simone, and she has apparently a website called Women in Refrigerators. So. Fridging means basically a character who is targeted by antagonist who has them killed off or raped or brutalized or incapacitated, whatever. And the only purpose of it is to affect another character so that they take action, right? Like think of an action movie in which like the hero watches his wife murdered and it makes him go on, you know, a murder spree. You could say that in John Wick, the dog is fridged because, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, but his wife is not, which I actually really love about John Wick, right? Like the, the wife is not murdered in order to propel like him onto a murder spree. Like it's smarter than that, right? But like it is, a, it's very lazy writing, right? To just take a woman and harm her or murder her specifically to motivate your male character, since most likely your lead character in anything is a male. Fridging also often happens to LGBTQ plus characters. Oh yeah, the, what is it, Kill, kill Your Gaze or something like mm-hmm. that or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I know that that came to a head on the 100 when yeah. they killed off one of the few uh, gay characters and people were like, fuck no. And the writers actually apologized for it. And, and learned and grew. But yeah, like basically the use of a character who is not the main character and in most things still that means a woman or or a gay or person or a person of color, like, you know, to, to just for the purpose of motivating someone and to show how evil your antagonist is, right? And I believe it comes from Green Lantern that literally murdered Green Lantern's girlfriend and shoved her in a fridge for him to find. Do better, guys. So uh, I have two that I've heard a lot and they're references to movies. Well, one is in a movie and one is the title of a movie. So the first one that we use all the time in our writer's room and that I didn't get because I had never seen the movie and I probably will never see the movie because it sounds super depressing. But what we say a lot is it's a Sophie's Choice. Sophie's Choice is a reference to a book from 1979 that was later made into a film in 1982 with... Meryl Streep. It's very sad. It's about a woman who is in a Nazi concentration camp and is forced to decide which of her two children will live um, and which will die, which is obviously a horrible choice that no parent should ever have to make. And so we use that term in TV writing to denote a choice that a character has to make, a dilemma, usually at the end of act four, the all is lost moment when they are torn between two 
just impossible choices to people that they care about or you know, they're going to have to give one thing up in order to get something else. But that one thing that they're giving up, what either one is just, it's a horrible choice. So it's sort of like a dilemma with no solution. That's like usually a darker version of the second piece of jargon, which is the Kobayashi Maru, which is a reference to the Wrath of Khan classic Star Trek movie in which uh, I think it's a, 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 a simulation. I could be wrong. It Let me is double a check. simulation. Yeah, it's a simulation. <laughs> I, that can, they I can nerd run. out on this if you need me to. But yes, please do. You. I just want you to nerd out. I know what it means, but now I want you to nerd out. <laughs> Kobayashi Maru is part of the Academy entrance exam for Starfleet in Star Trek, right? And it's an it puts you in an impossible situation where you're like a captain of a ship and everything is going wrong and you cannot save your crew. And there's a choice to be made. But famously, Captain Kirk is the only one to actually like pass the Kobayashi Maru simulation, and it's because he cheated. You can't actually win unless you cheat. There's like no good choices unless you find a way to just break the game. We use that term also to sort of denote a dilemma, but usually this is like there's a no-win scenario. There is just no way to there's no solution. It's presented in the story as there is no solution that is gonna allow this character to win. The thing is, there is. There's always a solution. Um, and so this is a great device, writing device to use to just show how awesome and badass and super clever your main character is. If they can find a solution in a seemingly impossible scenario, be it by cheating or be it by finding some sort of clever workaround, your hero is just that much more awesome. I think it's important to have those two things be distinct because they're very similar. You're right. Like Sophie's choice is there's no good choice, but you have to make the choice. And Kobayashi Maru is like, there's no, there's no way to win until you find a way to win that is something no one's thought of, right? Because I can tell you, and I feel like, one, all Jewish children are told Sophie's Choice from a young age. <laughs> I'm like, I absolutely remember hearing about this as a kid. Uh, she chooses the kid that looks more Aryan because they'll have a better chance of survival. What a horrible choice Oof. to have to make, but there's a logic there. Damn, Meryl. <laughs> all right. Well, on that happy note... <laughs> I'm going to talk about a mandate. I'm going to go kind of broader here. Like this isn't something you'd hear in a writer's room, but this is an important term to know because you're going to, when you have like a general meeting or something like that with any company that makes stuff, what you want to know is what their mandate is. So like their mandate is basically what are they trying to make? And most companies try to make more than one thing, right? So I'll use an example freeform, right? Like they have a mandate of a lot of different things, but one of their biggest mandates is that all of their shows are about a new adult or a, or a group of new adults who are entering a new stage in life. That's what they're looking to make. Mandate for say FX is going to be like to find darker content that is based around human behavior that, you know, comes out in really compelling ways or stuff like that. Or it might be as simple as like, you know, someone is looking for action movies. That's their mandate. They make action movies. It'll usually be a little more detailed than that, a little more thoughtful. Like we want smart action movies or we want four quadrant action movies, right? And four quadrant being, it appeals to all quadrants of humanity, right? Old, young, male, female, you know, everything. Ideally, that was one that it took me a while to figure out. They'd be like, our mandate is this. And I'm like, OK, OK, OK. <laughs> Don't know what that means. Well, sometimes they'll use really obtuse language to describe their mandate. Like they'll be like, 
We're looking for, you know, irreverent left of center dramedies. And Dude, the left of center is a term that needs to die. Like, yeah, just <laughs> it just means weird. It actually means they don't know what they're looking for until they find it. Honestly, that's true. So, Always ask what someone's mandate is and listen carefully. And if it's a bunch of jargon, then they may not know what they're looking for. And that's important for you to know as a writer who's meeting them. So my next selection, it's actually a collection of a couple of terms. The first is sneak and creep, which is the one I've heard most use. And then I prefer this other version just because I think it's funny because I'm juvenile. But um, it's also referred to as a snoop and poop. <laughs> and I think it's also... And is I, a snoop and poop like when you sneak up to somebody's door in the middle of the night and like they're your enemy or you're pranking them and you shit in a bag I and can, leave it on their front step? I can only picture this as like a teenage Halloween prank. Like you snoop, are they home? And then you poop on their front step. Yeah. No, I mean, it was only chosen, I think, because of the rhyming. But I, I know a lot of people that I've in writer's rooms now, they could just call it like, we're just going to do an Ocean's Eleven. So sneak and creep, stoop and poop, Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> it's basically all basically kind of the same thing, which is like you're going to have a character or team of characters and they're, they're basically breaking into a place they're not supposed to be to look around and gather clues or get something. And it has to be done kind of in secret, right? So you see it a lot in heist movies. You see it a lot in history movies. Ocean's Eleven is basically just one giant sneak and creep. You, know, you people mean one giant and- Snoop and poop. Is, is poop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, whenever it's like, okay, we need to have this guy break into the security room to get the footage, or he's just snooping around and taking a giant shit on everyone else's hard work just to get what he needs. <laughs> okay, this is my new favorite term. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I used to work um, in a room with a couple of writers that were really funny, and they loved all this jargon, and they just thought it was hilarious and also kind of bullshit. And so they would, <laughs> they would like make things up. I don't remember all of them, but I remember one was called... This is actually a reference to exposition, but it was called the chowder spout. <laughs> they just made it up <laughs> and they would say it with such a straight face that like all the other writers assumed it was like a term that they just didn't know. And so they would just like go along with it, even though they didn't know what the fuck it meant. <laughs> they would just say like, oh, this is the chowder spout, as in like this is the exposition dump. But they would use it for various things just to confuse them. <laughs> it <could just laughs> crack me up. So I feel like Snoop and Poop is like that. They're just somebody was just fucking with you. Probably. But I love it. So I use it now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still imagining you creeping up to like your <laughs> high school <laughs> nemesis's house and then somebody finding a shit. Okay, I have I have a good one because I heard this term for so long. It was like when I was like, oh yeah, I totally know what that means. And I never knew what it meant. And that's turnaround, which is another like technical term. It's not like something you say in a writer's room for like crafting a script or anything, but it's a technical term of a of a legal thing, right? So if you were to like sell a script to a studio, they they buy that script from you. And let's say they decide not to make it. Turnaround is something that you, the writer or the and or the producers can ask for to get it back, to set it up somewhere else. And there's all kinds of caveats that go with that. Like a lot of times the window is not friendly to writers. Like the WGA has something specific about your rights for that, but they're not super great. But like, it's something if you are selling anything, whether it's a show or a movie or whatever, have your lawyer look at getting favorable terms for a turnaround so that if it doesn't work out with these producers or this network, which sometimes it doesn't, you want to get that script back as soon as possible. And it's a little weird how difficult they make this because in a lot of ways, it's in a studio's best interest for you to 
take the script somewhere else because if any money has been paid by the studio, like let's say the studio buys your script for, you know, $100,000 or whatever, right? That's now money that has to be paid back if you set up the script somewhere else. Plus, they have some kind of profit participation. So like if you sell a show to, you know, ABC and ABC says, no, thank you. You take it to Fox and Fox says, yes, please. Then Fox has to pay ABC back for however much they paid for you to write the script. And they have to give ABC money going forward if the show actually airs. Right. And that's turnaround. Super, super simple. But I feel like no one really explains it. Yeah, it's definitely a term I heard a lot when I first moved out here and I didn't really get what it meant or what the purpose of it was. I've been thinking about rewriting the song Total Eclipse of the Heart to explain turnaround. Right? <laughs> Please do that. Please do that and, and <laughs> perform it on the podcast. Yes. yes. Uh, I don't, you can I don't write you parts for all of us. Like I'll, I'll yeah. sing it. Can anyone here sing? I assume Hannah can because she's like yeah. a nope. punk rocker. Uh, <laughs> we will bring someone on who can sing to be like, turn around and <laughs> yeah. then have it be every now and then a script gets sold to someone else and you've got to get your money back. <laughs> turn around. Damn, America. Yes. I'm, I'm here for it. We should quit screenwriting and just go to Broadway. Yeah, we could be a doo-wop group. <laughs> <laughs> Acapella. Yeah, we might want to keep our day jobs, I'm just saying. <laughs> pitch perfect, um, meet pitch decent. <laughs> pitch mediocre. Pitch okay. mediocre. <laughs> mediocre, that's what I meant. Damn it. Um, Words. All right, so I have, I guess, two more terms left, but they're kind of related. I, I heard this thrown around a lot, which is like, oh, come on, this is just, it's going to be a day player. We're going to cast a day player or a Canadian day player. And that just means in your script, you need a character, like your main characters go into a restaurant and the waiters have to tell them something, just like one or two lines that is slightly important, but you're never going to see this waiter again. So when production is casting this waiter character, they're not going to go out and find a very expensive actor. They're going to find a day player. A lot of productions are set in Canada now because it's cheaper, tax reasons. And so it's like, it's going to be some Canadian day player who's going to be delivering these lines. So if they're they're just going to be a Canadian day player, their acting ability could be great, but it could also just be mediocre. And so you don't want to give them a whole lot to do because you just don't know what you're going to get. So when they say we're going to cast a day player. Make their job easy. Yeah, make their job easy. And that way you don't have to spend a lot of time with them, et cetera. And then sort of tangentially related to that, it's something that we talk about in the room, which is like, okay, but like, look where they are on the call sheet. So on the call sheet is basically a long sheet that lists all of the your actors in order of importance slash money. And so your number one on the call sheet is going to be your most important actor, and they are going to be paid the most. And like one, two, three, four, all the way down. And so a lot of times when we're breaking story, we're like, oh, yeah, we're going to give this particular character so much story. It's going to be a highlight of, you know, the whole season. And then the showrunner will step in and be like, okay, but look where they are on the call sheet. And that person, that actor is like number nine. And you need to focus on number one, two, and three because they're the ones getting the most money. They're the top billed actor. People have come to see them. Yes. So it's always like, okay, look at the call sheet. Like, where are they on the call sheet? That's like a bucket of cold water on on everything like you know if you're number nine on the call sheet you don't get that really good line yeah that often happens yeah but somebody can be lower on the call sheet and like work really prove themselves and work their way up but you can't literally like you can't change your number on the call sheet i don't think right unless Uh, well i was thinking about um green arrow the number two character on that show becomes felicity smoke right but she was a day player and she just 
did really, really well in her scene with the main character. And so they brought her back and they brought her back and they made her a main character. And I think she's like, they get married or something. I don't know. I stopped watching that show eventually. But like she worked her way up the call sheet just by being charming and having really good chemistry with the lead. Yeah, it definitely happens. I learned a lot today. I learned not to put women in fridges anymore. I got to stop. Never doing that. do it unless like they're hiding in there and they're going to attack. Unless there's you know? an egg McMuffin in there. The MacGuffin of the egg McMuffin. Yeah. <laughs> is in the if they put themselves the in there to eat an egg McMuffin, it's okay. But Just, how far down the call sheet do you think the egg McMuffin is? Oh, then McMuffin's always number one. <laughs> Thank you guys for tuning in today. I hope you learned some excellent jargon and that now you can impress all of your friends with uh, all the words that you know look super smart or at least not feel stupid in a writer's room. So if you guys could please follow us on Twitter, our handle is at Untitled Female. You can connect with us there or email us at Untitled Female Driven Podcast at gmail.com. Also, we would love if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That would mean the world to us. Please say nice things. We love you, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you'd like to hear us talk about. Happy Egg McMuffins, everyone. (laughs) Enjoy your McMuffins. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.